HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. And on today's episode, longtime news anchor and self-proclaimed foodie Kate Sullivan tells us the story of creators and dreamers who have reached uncommon success through ingenuity and in innovation. That said, this could also be the synopsis of any newsworthy profile, but for Sullivan, the subject is focused around food. To Dine For, her wonderful 10-part series, uh, where she's joined by guests like Howard Schultz of Starbucks at the great Mamoon in Seattle, actress Jessica Alba, founder of Honest Company, uh, a wonderful meal around Night Market in Los Angeles, and celebrity chef and humanitarian Jose Andres, who takes her to Bodega 1900 in Barcelona. These are their favorite restaurants, and the conversation and culinary delights are just a way for Sullivan to see what it takes to pursue and achieve the American dream. Welcome to the show, Kate. Michael, thank you so much. This has got to be the coolest location <laughs> of a podcast of all time. This this is kind of your show flipped in the sense that it I'm is. interviewing you. You are more than halfway through your pizza. Yes, I am. Um, and hopefully this starts becoming one of your favorite restaurants. It is a wonderful spot. The food is incredible. And honestly, um, I, I will tell you, there's nothing better than sitting down to a meal with somebody as a way to connect with them and to learn more about them. And that's really the 
basis of the show to dine for. What were your first meals? I don't mean, you know, whether or not you were breastfed and spoon, <laughs> but what were the first meals that you remember sitting around a table with family, friends, and that convivial nature? That's really interesting because, um, you know, for me, going out to eat was always a celebration. Um, it was something you, we didn't do it often. My parents are both school teachers and, you know, we have a ton of money, but, um, when you did, it was about, uh, it was exciting. It was a reward. And, um, the conversation where mom didn't have to cook, you know, dad wasn't distracted. You could really listen to each other and have a wonderful conversation is really probably some of the best memories of my childhood. I mean, is that why I created the show? I don't know. But it, it, it definitely played a factor in why I love to go out to eat, why I'm obsessed with going to different restaurants, why I read menus on my off time and really enjoy following food blogs. I mean, this for me was really just um, a, a passion project. It was something that, you know, if you you know, what, what do people love to do on their off time? You know, it says a lot about them, right? And for me, it was just sort of this obsession with, with finding great restaurants and sharing them. Then was award-winning journalism, working for CBS Chicago and so forth, not passion? Uh, I mean, you, you are such a vigorous journalist. Um, this is not a show just having a meal, chit-chatting. There is depth, there is substance to this. Uh, Thank you. How did you take what you've learned as a news reporter and turn it into something that seems conversational, but really hits similar chords. Well, it's funny you say that because I, you know, over my years of being a journalist, you know, I started in Indiana, then I worked in Arkansas, anchored the morning news in New York on WCBS. Then I anchored the evening news in Chicago at WBBM. You know, what I learned is when you're doing and you want to do a really great interview, you want to put whoever you're interviewing at ease. And how do you do that? You know, so many people are nervous before they go on camera. And it's just a natural response to being on camera. And it's like, how can you put them in a setting where they really come alive? That's and why I, we take away all the cameras and placate <laughs> with pizza. I'm telling you, Roberta's <laughs> is the place to come. I found that people, when they're talking about what they love, they come alive. And so for me, that's food. My th and it was really just an idea. I didn't know if it would actually work. I thought, what if I take these dreamers, creators, innovators, put them at their favorite restaurant and, and have them talk about why they love the place and see if it's the same for them. Will they come alive? Will we get to see a different side of someone at their favorite restaurant than we would see if we interviewed them in a conference room or at a, in a studio, you know, we see Howard Schultz in, in so many different settings at a podium looking very official, but what would he look like at his favorite restaurant in Seattle, which happens to be mom noon? What about Jessica Elba? You know, we see her on the small screen and the big screen. What would it look like to put her at her favorite restaurant, which happens to be night market in, in Los Angeles? And, and would we see a different side? And my thought was maybe we would. And it was really just an idea. I thought it was interesting how it, almost decontextualize the food at the restaurant because these people would sit and eat and I, I was looking for these glimpses into which dishes they liked and why and, and the episodes were certainly highlighted by that but mm -hmm. they in no way were the focus of your conversation right um but let's first talk about you and your favorite restaurant mm. like if you were to flip the script where would you want to be interviewed and why I think it would vary depending on what part of my life we're talking about. I'm from a small town in Massachusetts. 
Um, and, you know, I spent, you know, hours going out to dinner with my dad, um, going out to bars and restaurants. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of lobster rolls and, and neighborhood joints and, and really casual spots that um, are indicative of the neighborhood. Um, now I live in Chicago and I love Cafe Spiaggia, which is, you know, considered one of the best restaurants in the country. Um, Tony Montuano. I mean, just impeccable service. When I lived in Little Rock, Arkansas, it was a place called Your Mama's that was soul food <laughs> and it was mashed potatoes and chicken fried steak and collard greens. And it was steamy in there. And, you know, you ha- it was a cafeteria style and you had to bring your tray and you got a big yeast roll with honey and butter at the end. And, and for me, that was, that was indicative of my experience in Little Rock, which is about warm comfort food, a lot of, a lot of fried everything, and really spending time with people, getting to know them, having a meal that wasn't just, you know, let's eat and get out of here, which I think, you know, growing up on the East Coast, I, I hate to say it, but that's how a lot of meals are. It's, you know, the, the idea of sort of the European way of really enjoying your meal, slowing down, letting each course be a moment uh, letting space in between and really conversation be an entree. Um, that's, you know, you don't see it every day. And so I, I, I kind of, parts of me want to return to that. And that's part of the show too. You have quite the dichotomy though of, of restaurants that you referred to yourself mm-hmm. uh, from white tablecloth Michelin star to seemingly, you know, mass hole esque, yes. you know, uh, <laughs> little clam shacks. Right. Um, how does the ambiance or, or the tenor of replace change your tone, the conversation, the, the comfort level? Well, first of all, thanks for asking that because last week I was in Madison, Wisconsin, wearing a flannel shirt at a place called Wando's eating cheese curds. Yes. And yesterday I was at Jean-Georges ABC Kitchen with Deepak Chopra. So <clears throat> what I love about To Dine For is that dichotomy. What I love is going someplace that someone really loves, that really speaks to who they are. And you know what? The variety is what makes it so exciting. I mean, do I want to just do a a program with all Michelin star, James Beard award-winning restaurants? I don't. I want to do a show that really speaks to individual people and what they really love. And, um, you know, the goal would be to show sort of the diversity of of disciplines that we feature on the show, whether they're an author, an actor, a CEO, a founder, but also different parts of the country and how, you know, food is a great indicator of, of our culture, where we're from, who we are, what we love. And, um, you know, that's what makes the show so exciting for me personally to produce. Well, you do have two food-focused people on the show, uh, Howard Schultz and mm-hmm. Jose Andres. Mm-hmm. So you have coffee and tapas. Yes. Um, I-, I thought it was really interesting to see where Howard picked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just because of the vicinity of it mm-hmm. being on Pike Place. Mm-hmm. But how did this person who built Almost Lost, and I, I love that episode because of how open and-, and willing he was to divulge information that I know he's spoken about before, but in a very plain and humble way. Um, What was it about Mamoon and the food there that reflected his story? Well, first of all, people don't realize, you know, Howard Schultz grew up in the projects of Canarsie, Brooklyn. He, uh, you know, his father was a delivery driver who slipped on some ice in the winter and was out of a job because he didn't have insurance. 
and every Starbucks employee can apply for insurance. And I think because of his father, um, he was he, the story of Howard Schultz and how he created Starbucks. I think is one of the greatest business stories of our time. Um, to be able to come from where he came from and his story of trying to get the money and the rejections he faced. He faced, I think it was 282 rejections trying to um, raise the money for Starbucks. And that, that, that sense of resilience, that sense of passion that it took to build this brand that is all over the world, that has infiltrated Asian company, Asian countries that don't drink coffee. You know, they're tea drinkers, and and yet they're all over Asia. I mean, what he was able to do to change consumer behavior and how we drink coffee, how Americans drink coffee. Remember Folgers? I remember my dad with just a spoonful of Folgers, and he'd call it a day. I mean, no one does that anymore. I mean, everyone is, you walk around, and everyone's got a Starbucks cup, or they're drinking another brand. I don't want to be specific to Starbucks, but he really did change the way people drink coffee. But what about the pita? What about the pita machine that they have at Mount Noon? What about the soup and salad that you ate? Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what did you think of those foods? And how did conversation change while you were eating and enjoying those things with Howard? Mount Noon Restaurant, which is in the Capitol Hill section of Seattle, is very, very small. It's very simple. And it has delicious, simple flavors, and amazing hospitality. Um, You could go in there in jeans. Howard was wearing a suit. Um, But you could literally go in there in jeans and have a wonderful meal. It's incredibly casual. Uh, We had uh, the baba ganoush. We had this uh, lentil soup that was amazing, that we had um, a fatouche salad. And, you know, this was a chance to have flavors that you don't, I don't normally eat. Um, But more than anything, it was a chance to see this wonderful hospitality and this sense of welcoming and a sense of warmth that you get um, at at Mom Noon. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it the, the food was part of it, but really it was that sense of hospitality is why Howard chose that location. He likes to think, um, what I learned from that interview is like, he likes to think of Starbucks as our third place. Like we have home, we have work, and that third place that we can go and relax, which I thought was so interesting. So he wants to kind of conjure the same, of course, he's no longer the CEO, but it, you know, when he was creating the company, he wanted to create the sense of hospitality that he saw in Mam Noon. It's, I forget who the third place is accredited to, uh, Oldenburg, but it was always about bars after work. Mm-hmm. It, it was never really about a place that you can go like Mam Noon or Starbucks, even more specifically, all day long and right. still have that sense of that, that safe space. Well, I think, you know, Howard was inspired by a trip to Milan, Italy, and seeing uh, what the espresso bars of Milan did for the Italian culture, that you could sit and, and, and literally sip uh, an espresso for an hour. And why don't we have this in the U.S.? Why don't people, you know, behave like that? And what would that do to a sense of culture and community? And that's what started it. And, and you, in, to his credit, I mean, Starbucks is a cultural phenomenon. I mean, people do go to Starbucks to meet and to relax and to have that cup. And I, I know that that was part of his rationale behind the whole thing. I watch a lot of Law and Order, and they always say on there, never go to a second place, second space. If a, if a kidnapper moves you, then the mortality. I mean, this is morose to speak. <laughs> Where but are you going I, with this? The, the fact that he couldn't resist taking you over to Starbucks for that whiskey barrel uh, iced coffee. Um, 
I thought was really interesting. How often do you let a guest say, I'm taking you to a second space? Or do you try to contain the episode um, over that meal? Actually, I, every one of them, I want them to take me to a second spot. And here's why. Um, because, you know, you're sitting at a table and there's something about getting up and continuing the conversation in another space that leads to a change, that change of venue leads to a different thought process. And so sometimes you see a different, my whole goal is to showcase the person, the the guest. Um, The food is the vehicle. And for me to go to that second spot is sometimes more revealing. You know, where are they taking me and what are we talking about? Uh, Very often it's final thoughts. Um, It's a way to change the direction of the conversation. And so every one of them, I I let them take me to a second spot. Uh, Speaking of second spots, I'd like to almost jump to, I think it was episode four, uh, Jim McInvale from Houston, Texas. Yes, Mattress Mac. He opened up that second space to everyone in Houston after Hurricane Harvey hit. Um, Talk to me about what kind of fixture and character he is to that community and how he chose a very, um, you know, simple and and straightforward family-run Mexican restaurant. Right, Lopez Mexican restaurant that uh, literally everyone that that was working there was a Lopez. Um, It was an amazing restaurant, delicious Tex-Mex, but yes, very simple. Um, For him, I think he has a tremendous sense of community and um, loyalty to Houston. And his, what, what really is the hallmark of Jim McInvale, his his willingness and his desire to give back and to help. And so when Hurricane Harvey hit, he opened up all of his mattress stores um, to anyone who needed a place to stay. And I think that really touched the community to the core. And by that, he literally gave them beds to sleep on, his beds that he was going to sell anyway. Yeah, and, and, you know, and regardless of what would happen to them, um, he was going to, he, it was, as he said, it was more important that they had a place to stay than any sale he could have made. And, you know, he's done a lot of countless things for that community. And I think f- I enjoyed that episode so much to see someone who was a businessman who'd, who'd been very successful, had been there for years, but someone who just had a heart of gold and really wanted to give back. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about Jason Jaden, uh, just because I, I deeply disagree with the idea of deep dish from Chicago being pizza. And we are at Roberta's right now. <laughs> Jason Maiden, yes. Maiden, sorry, yes. yes. But he is, he's a tremendous figure um, to you know people who you know sneakerheads, yes. uh, but also now to children and and people that want to dream outside of the box of who they think they can become. Yeah, Jason made it from the south side of Chicago, one of the da- most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago. He grew up wanting to be a designer. He had the Nike logo on his ceiling and he would look at it every day. Um Long story short, he became the first ever design intern for Nike in Portland, Oregon. And then he went on to become a designer for Nike and create the highest grossing shoe of all time, the Air Monarch. And so he, the boy who dreamed that he could, went on to be the man who did. And um, he is now the CEO of Super Heroic. I'm going to see him in a couple weeks at the Harvest Summit in California and interview him on stage. He is a true inspiration. In fact, I love the feedback that I get from the viewers of To Dine For, and I recently got an email that said, could I have the transcript of the Jason Maiden episode, because I want to take some of those quotes and put them on the, on the ceiling of my daughter's bedroom. What, what quotes? Um, 
I, I don't know. Did you watch the whole episode? Yeah, I watched most of it, yeah. Because I, I've never interviewed anyone that I think is more quotable than yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. He, um, he said, you know, if it, it's never, you know, win or lose. It's win or learn. It is a situation of dreaming really big and making it happen. I mean, his story of of how he literally not only visualized his success, but then every step he took to make it happen. You know, people talk about having dreams and then making them happen, but very few people talk about exactly what they did to make it happen. I feel like the Jason Maiden episode is a blueprint for how to do it. If you have something out there and you feel like you're from a part of this country where things good things don't happen or it could never happen to you or you come from a place of, I, I just don't know how to make this happen. This episode, he takes you step by step every single thing he did to make it happen. And it was just hustle and heart. And he kind of goes through that. So he gives people like actionable steps. And the transparency of who he is, I think, is reflected in, uh, dare I say it, deep dish pizza. And that, <laughs> you know, it's nothing more than... Maybe you can call it a crust sauce <laughs> and cheese. And my favorite quote of his was actually about the food. He called it an edible hug. Yes. And it felt like that whole episode was in, in, an embrace of, of everybody. Yeah. Well, he's a, you, you can tell he's a person of great faith. He's a person who believes. And it's, he's a person who leads with integrity and kindness. And that's really, really important to him and informs everything he does. But I love how you said that because I feel like the whole show is an edible hug. You know, yes. it's a big hug from him. Yeah. Excellent. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. Come back, talk about Jose, Andres, Jessica Alba, maybe a little more teasers about season two. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Kate Sullivan of To Dine For. That is To Dine For. TV.com, a wonderful 10-part series where she talks to luminaries in many different industries at their favorite restaurants and has really uh, amazing conversation, these 30-minute introspective looks into their life, their past, and and how they see their future uh, unfolding. Two people I really want to talk about. One, Jose Andres. Uh, 
we know him in the food world as this wonderfully uh, um, outroverted, outspoken personality. And in the past couple of years, this shift to being a humanitarian, mm-hmm. um, ever since you know a hurricane landfell in Puerto Rico, has, has changed him as a figurehead in this country. Um, though he took you to Spain. He did. He took me to Barcelona. <laughs> Why did he take you there? Mm-hmm. And, and what did that cuisine and that experience and that liquid olive uh, mm-hmm. do to change your perception of him? Well, when I made the request to his uh, Think Food group, I, I said, you know, I wanted uh, Chef Jose to take me to his favorite restaurant. And uh, I think there was some talk that maybe he would take me to one of his favorite restaurants in Washington, D.C., where uh, Haleo, his his famous restaurant, started. And um, he was going to spend the entire summer in Spain. And I said, I'm willing to go to Spain. And they go, really? And I go, yeah, I'm willing to go to Spain. So um, he chose Bodega 1900, which is a vermouth bar, um, but also a very, very very famous uh, tapas restaurant as well. And um, it is connected to the uh, Ferran Adria of Il Bulli uh, fame. And um, it was a, an amazing experience. Chef Jose not only is a master chef, uh, a, a visionary of, of cooking, but he is someone whose passion, incessant and relentless passion for food is palpable. And uh, the experience was incredible. It was one of the most stressful shoots uh, I've, I've ever been on because of trying to get to Barcelona at the time. I was uh, seven months pregnant. I was trying to get to Spain. I had a lot of delays. Um, the actual shoot was stressful because we lost a camera. One wasn't rolling. The chef was a little bit late. I mean, everything about the, half the crew couldn't speak English. I mean, it was a very s- stressful shoot for me as a producer, but it was, as an experience, one of the most memorable. I mean, let's talk about the food itself because those liquid olives are life-changing. Yes. And I've been lucky enough to have uh, many of his iterations. Right. Um, what is it about the food uh, aside from the person that that you have some kind of visceral experience to, well, especially his food, right? Um, you know, he does cooking uh, differently, to say the least. Um, he is someone, especially so the liquid olive. Let's start with there because that's what you referenced. Um, the the visual of it, it looks like a, sort of it looks a little bit gelatinous. Um, you're not quite sure what it is. Um, and I, I immediately thought it was a liquefied olive, like they'd taken an olive and sort of pureed it, but that wasn't it. Um, it, it, it had almost like a yolk to it. So when you, you, you ate it like an oyster where you kind of just like slid it into your mouth and then it did, had a little pop where, um, the liquid, uh, released and it was this incredible sensation. So it was like a, a surprise in your mouth of just like this beautiful olive flavor. And it was something that Chef Jose actually invented along with um, Ferran Adria. And so he brought it to the U.S. and has brought it into his restaurants. I believe you can get it here in New York um, at the... Little Spain. Yeah, Little Spain, exactly. So people can try it if they're in New York at Little Spain. Um, and then it was just, you know, as as people know, tapas is small plates of, of Spanish food, uh, just really enough to whet the appetite. And tapas originally was intended to kind of bar hop. So you have a couple of little plates with a drink, a vermouth maybe, and then you move to the next bar, and you try their specialty, you have a couple plates and you move on, which is a wonderful way to enjoy an evening. We don't really do that in the U.S., right? We we, we kind of sit and we stay. Um, I kind of like it because you can walk 
you can walk a little bit and then stop in and you get different atmospheres. It's a really unique way to spend an evening. And, um, we probably had about 10 different dishes, a lot, a lot, several types of anchovies, mm-hmm. um, you know, which you don't normally have in the United States and you don't associate with tapas. Uh, patatas bravas is like sort of the American tapas, right? It's those, uh, uh, sort of almost like tater tots, right? That's the equivalent, but they're not, they're a little bit lighter and, uh, less fried. And then they're usually put uh, with a little hot spicy sauce on the top. Um, So we had like some classic tapas dishes and then we had the anchovies. And, um, you know, I think what struck me about the food with Chef Jose is how much he enjoyed seeing my reaction to the food. Yes. And you could tell that that, even after all his years as a chef, he still gets a lot out of seeing people delighted by food. Yeah. Uh, You know, what I also thought was interesting is that he... He often tries to change the dynamic and, 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 you know, be the consummate host. Yes. But as somebody who's interviewing him, how do you sit in the position of, I'm asking the questions, mm-hmm. yet you see him trying to take the reins and stare at a different way? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you let that guess, you know, uh, create and forge their own path and you try to react to that conversation? Or do you have an agenda when you sit down with That's somebody? That's a fantastic question. And, um... I think for me and like what I hope sets me apart is my ability to listen. And that sounds so simple, right? Like who doesn't listen? But listening is not the same thing as thinking. So when you're really listening, you're absorbing what someone's saying and then reacting to ask a question after it. Thinking is when you're sort of like making sure they're finished talking and then ask a question. So for me, like I try to be very much in the moment which requires me to be very prepared for the interview, but then throw it all out the window and be ready for anything. You're right. Chef was definitely hosting me Uh with the food, but I was able to get a lot of questions in and I'm definitely directing the conversation. Are there any questions that you ask and you think to yourself while you're in that moment of actually, uh, you know, uh, saying it, this is a great question. I can't wait to hear the response And, and their answer bombs. A lot of times. (laughs) Yeah. So what do you do in a situation like that? Yeah. You know, um, I think you always have a sense of where you want to take the conversation. And I think often you are surprised by what questions get the best answers. And so I think kind of surrendering to the uncertainty of an interview and surrendering to the fact that if someone, some people are self-conscious and they don't want to answer things, you know, and that's okay. Okay, so you gotta you gotta be ready with what the next question is, but also absorb their emotion of how, why they answered it a certain way, and maybe there's an opportunity for a follow up follow up that's very revealing. Or you just make them eat spicy food because I think the moment <laughs> that broke Jessica Alba, I mean, you having a very fluid conversation with her was when uh, the heat was a little too much for her. Yes. And she's like, but I really love it. And she reaches for the rice and all the vegetables. Uh, you know, it, night market, uh, night plus market is, is a twist on, on contemporary Thai. And there are certain spice levels. And I think the humility that she felt after you seeing her not be able to take the heat figuratively, Mm -hmm. um, was an interesting pendulum Mm. in in your conversation. Yeah, she actually swore, but because of PBS, (laughs) we had to cut that out. Um, 
you know what I loved about Jessica Alba's episode was that she really loved that restaurant. And that's the goal of the show. I don't want someone to take me to a place just for show. I want me to, I want someone to take me to a place that they really love. And she really loved Night Market. Uh, Chef Chris Yembermrung, who has been nominated for James Beard Award and is the son of a, a famous Thai restaurant in Los Angeles. He's trying to do it his own way and he's doing an, an amazing job. It's, it's delicious. It's casual. It's fun. Um, and she wanted to kind of showcase that restaurant, um, she is an actress and she's incredibly poised, incredibly composed. And so, yeah, in a situation like that, to see someone crack a little bit or to see who they really are, it's kind of fun. I also thought it was amazing parallels. You talked mm. about Chef Chris uh, of Night Market um, and Jessica Alba. They, they had these very expected roles uh, that they've played for a long time. And Jessica being an actress and then opening up The Honest Co., which we'll talk about. And then Chris taking on this legacy restaurant and then being completely panned when he revamped the restaurant mm-hmm. with his culinary education <clears throat> and his vision. It, it took a while for people to take them seriously in these yes. new roles. So how, how did Jessica parlay her her you know past career and current career and, and that fame into being known and being you know, uh, respected for the honest company. My favorite story that she told was when, um, she was pitching the honest company to some investors and and they said, you know, why don't you just create a perfume line and put your name on it? Well, let's define what the honest company is first. Mm -hmm. I just had a newborn. So, uh, the weight of which diaper to choose (laughs) and all the cleaning supplies, it's, it's, you know, part of the conversation of my life now. Absolutely. The Honest Company is a destination for uh, products that are free of chemicals. There are a lot of, it started with cleaning products, but it has extended to a baby line, including diapers um, and a lot of uh, products for babies, including lotions and soaps. Uh, it's now in makeup and she has, a, she's now sort of an empire uh, worth a, valued at a, biz, a billion dollars. She's been incredibly successful, but it really started when she had a newborn herself and she was trying to figure out why her child would break out in a rash after, um, I believe, had a onesie that had been washed in a certain detergent. And so it became her quest for a healthier world, for a safer world for her children that started this billion-dollar brand. Um, It's an amazing story because what I'm so impressed with Jessica is she is absolutely gorgeous, uh, very successful actress, could have rested on her laurels any day of the week, but decided to take on something this difficult, and she's done it successfully. Um, getting back to what you said about uh, naysayers and how everyone seems to be having a hard time at the beginning, I feel like that's, the, if there's one common thread among all the guests on To Dine For, um, which I think is probably indicative of anyone who tries anything and becomes a success, is that most people at the beginning tell you you have a bad idea. <laughs> Most people tell you it's never going to work. And you, you're you up against a lot of negativity. And it's how do you react to that that is one of the indicators of your success. Is there a reason that Catherine Minshew was the last episode? Because she has the duplicity of being told no, and then she's offering a vehicle with themuse.com to, to let people try to find their, their career. Mm-hmm. Um, Catherine Minshew was actually the very first person who agreed to do To Dine For. So when I had the idea to create this show um, from scratch, um, who is going to do a show that doesn't exist, right? Who's going to do a show that may never make air? I mean, that's a significant amount of time for someone of 
of any of, of anyone anywhere to do a show that doesn't exist. And Catherine Minshew, I had known her because I was on a speaking panel with her. I thought she was phenomenal. I called her up. And she agreed she was the very first person to do the program. And I, I really kind of owe it to her. Um, she's so young. She's so dynamic. And themuse.com is a website to help uh, millennials find the perfect job. Jose Andres took you to Spain, a uh, local restaurant for Mattress Mac in Houston. Yes. Um, you know, and, and around the corner from Starbucks were reserved for Howard Schultz. But then with Catherine, she takes you to Is a Kaya Nomad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she herself is not Japanese, mm-hmm. um, though that seems to be such a perfect fit for the way she works, mm-hmm. the, the communal nature of how she collaborates. How does it how does it work that the restaurants pair with the person so well? Well, that's another goal of the show. I think that where we choose as our favorite restaurant says something about us. And every single person on the show where they choose does say something. And, and it's part of sort of the uh, mystery of when I start to do an episode. It's like, where, what is going to be the parallel? Why did they choose this place? And every one of them speaks volumes. Like for Catherine, it happened to be this like neighborhood joint um, in Nomad, right? North of Madison, the area that, you know, 10 years ago was kind of in flux and now is incredibly successful neighborhood. And she used to go there because she worked so bloody hard. Um, she would work, you know, to the wee hours of the morning, they're open till 4am. And it's sushi and um, grilled skewers. And it's, you know, big Kirin lights. And it's a little divey, a little fun, um, and very easy. And that's why I thought that was amazing. You know, here she had experienced some success, but still wanted to go back to Izakaya Nomad. And it was delicious. I think you did such a great episode in that job, being able to eat some of those large <laughs> maki rolls and still interview. And I, I wonder how you do that sitting across the table from somebody yeah. and taking that bite. Um, you have some pizza in front of you. I haven't seen you take a bite since we've gotten on air, <laughs> yet four slices are missing. But how, how do you fit that into the flow of things? Yeah, you got to eat, right? The whole point, I can't do a food show and not eat. Um, I love to eat, so it's very authentic to me. I know I'm also producing the show, so I know I can edit it out if I have like <laughs> spinach in my teeth or cheese hanging off my chin. Um, and I, I, I tell the guests that you know I would never make them look bad, and I would make sure I would, to edit all that out. Um, but yeah, we really eat on the show. I mean, I think I do more eating than the guests because they do more talking. Um, but it's important. It's really important to enjoy the meal and to make that very much a part of the show. You don't have to tell me both things at once, but can you give us some teasers as to what you ate in season two and or who you profiled? Sure. Uh, So we really run the gamut um, in season two, and I'm so excited about it. We eat at one of the first restaurants in the country that is documented as fusion. Uh, It's a restaurant called Crustacean in San Francisco that uh, started by refugees from the Vietnam War who moved into an old deli and started their Vietnamese restaurant with no success. They say, why are all the Italians having success? Everyone's eating there. As you know, in San Francisco has that beautiful hill with all Italian restaurants. So they started to create garlic noodles. (laughs) And so Crustacean is now an empire and is incredibly a fancy restaurant, especially compared to what it was. Um, 
That's one of the restaurants. We end up eating cheese curds in Madison, Wisconsin at a restaurant called Wando's, which is a favorite of college students at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That was a lot of fun. I did that a couple of weeks ago. We end uh, end up at Jean-Georges ABC Kitchen in season two. We end up in, let me see here, um, where else did we go? Oh, one of my favorite episodes, we... Uh, go all the way to Golden, Colorado to eat at a Himalayan restaurant with the flavors of the Himalayan mountains. We have sag paneer and we have mango lassis. So the variety of food is absolutely incredible. And so are the guests. The guests, um, the only thing they have in common is that they're all dreamers and they all made something happen themselves. And when does episode two, I mean, season two launch? We're looking at, we don't have an exact date, but we're looking at February 2020. To dine4tv.com. That's T-O-D-I-N-E-F-O-R-T-V.com. Everyone should tune in. Uh, they are wonderful, um, if not compact. Like, the thing is, I want so much more out of every episode, too. <laughs> uh, the food looks fantastic. The conversation, it, it's like the, the best... Um, you know, dinner, lunch, et cetera, company you can have. Uh, now, we just all want to seat at the table with you as well. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks for having me on. Thank, thanks for being on. You've been listening to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Wisconsin Cheese as our sponsors. Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers. Food Scene is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage, and thanks for listening. <laughs>